be talking about today in the Come and Listen series, we're going to be talking about a time where Israel had one of its biggest ever revivals, awakenings, and it was during the time of a guy named Hezekiah. And uh, Hezekiah calls the people back to worship, back to the temple of the Lord, and some really cool stuff happens. Uh, and I'm going to tell you about it and uh, probably uh, yell, not in, at you, but just I get excited because, you know, the, I, the last few weeks, if you haven't been with us, it's been pretty, pretty amazing. Two weeks ago, Derek was talking about uh, the Valley of Jeho- Jehoshaphat and how there was a war waged there and they used worship to fight in this valley. And then last week, uh, Antley was here, and he was talking about the Holy Spirit and how the, when we become Christians, it's not just that we just keep trucking along, and now we have faith and we're waiting to go to heaven. But no, God's Spirit is calling to us. He wants us to experience things outside of just head knowledge. He comes into the heart. Our heart becomes the temple of the Lord, and he fills it with gladness so that we can preach his mes- message in power. Uh, it was awesome. So if you missed that, I want to say all this. Both of those things are in the story of of Hezekiah, that valley and the power of the Holy Spirit, and I want you to look for it. But bigger than that, as we go through it, we're going to be in uh, 2 Chronicles 28, 29, 30, 31, and 32. That's a lot of chapters. I swear I'm not going to preach for four hours, just around 45 minutes. Uh, But I'm going to try to narrate that story because it's amazing. And I'll pull out as, uh, you know, what's happening and put my Dave stuff on it. Uh, but I want you to see through this whole thing, as this whole thing is unfolding, you see the story of Jesus. This was written 740 years before the birth of Christ, and you can already see the story of Jesus in it. It's amazing. So I'll give you a quick overview um, of what's happening. Oh, happy end of spring break. You got to go back to school tomorrow. <laughs> back to normal life. Uh, um I didn't do that in the first service, and I wanted to, and I forgot, so i take that. Uh, so spring break is over. We had a little sun, and now it's time to go back to life. And so I want to tell you a little bit about the life these people were living uh, just before Hezekiah takes the throne, okay? And a lot of people, most people, I didn't know until I started doing this research, this story we're about to go through is the most told story of the New Testament. It's talking about in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, or several chapters in Isaiah, uh, where you read prayers of this king who was only 25 years old when he takes the throne. And it's also mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says that another prophet, this guy Micah, and commentary, scholars and commentaries believe, uh, commentators believe that this guy Micah preached a message and gave a prophecy that inspired this young, this young king that he was moved by the message of Micah that he, uh, was, he went forth and desired to start this great awakening. And it's crazy, the stuff that uh, happens. But so anyway, here's what's going on in this time in Israel. If you've been with us, if you're not, I'll tell you, there were several generations of different kings that ruled over Israel. And it ended up being wars all the time and them worshiping God and then falling away. And the kingdom breaks up. And now there's two kingdoms. The northern part of Israel is where about 10 of the tribes were. Remember, there's 12 tribes the lower part where Jerusalem was, the capital, was the kingdom of Judah. There was two tribes there. And there's this constant weave. Derek said it best. It's like there's a bunch of kings, and they're like medium good to low. Uh, Hezekiah was like medium good to very good. The Bible says that he did good in, in, in the eyes of God. But his dad, who's got a funny name, Ahaz, uh, was a very bad one. I mean, he did some terrible things. We're going to read about it. And just the culture that he creates in Israel for, for 20 years, the generation that these people lived in is just crazy uh, what they experienced and what their day-to-day life was like uh, before his son sets, sets the stage. But when his son takes the throne, 
I mean, he restores worship. Prayer becomes a passion of the people. And the culture, the people, their lives were changed by this call, by this awakening. In the midst of all the idols and the worship of other gods and, and, and pagan rituals, it all happens. I, 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 we're, you're going to see. So all that's about to happen. But first, let's look at this, this Hezekiah's dad. Bad dude. Second Chronicles 28. If you have a Bible, turn there. If not, uh, we are very friendly here. We'll put it on the screen. I Uh, uh, verse 2 it says he followed the ways of the kings of Israel and made idols for worshiping the Baals he burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Anon and sacrificed his own children in the fire this is a bad dude his own kids he didn't at least he didn't burn up Hezekiah but he's he's throwing his children into the fire of Molech there was a it was a god of the uh, Moabites said it right. It's a weird word to say. Uh, but he's a bad guy, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations of the Lord and driving them out before the Israelites. Now pay attention here. This is where it gets real. He offered sacrifices and burnt offerings at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. Therefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hands of another king, the king of Amaran. So think about the way these people are lived. He's doing all this stuff. He's sacrificing children. And he is setting up these high places. Or basically, they were just elevated platforms where they would put an, uh, a, a, a wooden owl of Molech on top of it. And people would burn incense and worship. It's on every hilltop, under every tree. So everywhere these people go in their day-to-day life, when they're going to work, when they're going to school, when they're doing their job, they are seeing these other idols They live in Israel. This is Jerusalem. This is the place where God, Yahweh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the whole deal is happening. And they're just everywhere that they look. Every space is just idols. That's just their life. And they just kind of get used to it. And so that's kind of the way Ahaz was doing the thing. He was just like, you know, he did all those terrible things. And then it says this this other king comes at him. This guy from Iran. Another war starts. uh, And what does he do? Check it out. Verse 22. Things are starting to go bad. It says, in his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful. He offered sacrifice to the gods of Damascus, who had defeated him, for he thought, since the gods of these kings have helped me before, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me out. This is the part that's also important, verse 24. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings of the temple of God, and he cut them into pieces. He shut the doors of the temple. In the King James, it says that he bolted the doors of the temple shut and set up, look here, altars on every single street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to the burnt offerings to the other gods and arose the anger of the Lord. So imagine it. So he's going to die soon. Hezekiah is going to take the spot. And the the people in this culture are the ones that are going to respond to this revival. And there was only a couple of major revivals in the Old Testament. David his son Solomon, there was a young king named Josiah, and then this awakening, the awakening that comes from Hezekiah. And I'm trying to, I'm thinking about this stuff, and I'm like, how am I going to make this relatable with these high, high, you know, altars? And we don't, we don't have altars everywhere. This is a completely different group of people than us, right? We can't, we can't relate to idol worship even a little bit. I mean, we don't do things like that. There's not things on every street corner, under every tree, everywhere we go. That's not us that's not our culture the more i thought about it i was like you know what it's really not that different than us is it i mean we still have idols we still have things that we follow after other than god they're just disguised a little more cleverly than they used to be what's an idol 
It's anything that you build your life on, anything that you, that you look for for purpose and meaning and hope other than God. Do we have those things in our hearts? What about the idols that may or may not be in our hearts? We, if you've been around Ocean City for any number of seasons, you might have heard of a thing called Freedom Course. Anybody heard of Freedom Course? All right, Freedom Course is something that was, uh, that, uh, I think it was Beth. Did you do it, Beth? Did you come up with it? Oh. I, oh, she ripped it up. But it's stuff from Tim Keller's work. It's, <laughs> sorry, I can put you on the spot like that. She's like, oh, quiet. Uh, so it, it basically, it's a course that was developed for small groups that talks about these kind of idols, not the ones that sit on a high place, but the ones that are in our hearts, right? And on the second page, I want to read to you what um, is the second page of it. It's all works and mostly different stuff by Tim Keller. He says this, and I want you to think about your heart, your idols, because trust me, we have them. I know I have them, and I'll tell you about some of mine in a minute. It says, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than God. Whatever we build our lives on will drive us and save us. Sin is primarily adultery. It's from Tim, Tim Keller's book talking about the idolatry in our age. So we've been doing a series with our students on Wednesday night, and we've been talking to them about sex and sexuality and all that things, that kind of stuff. And basically, we're trying to help them see that it's, sexuality has become an idol in our world. It's everywhere that you go, everything that you see. Every time you pull out this phone, or you, you, even if you put the safeguards on it so they can't see the things they shouldn't be seeing, there's always a little image. You go on this web, web, website, there's something just, just enticing you to click it. Look at me. Be like me. Follow me. Pay attention to me. And do we? Yes, we do. We have idols in our hearts. Sometimes they look like that. Sometimes they're, they're, they're idols that we get from, you know, relationships. Uh, you, if you've never been in a freedom course over the pandemic time, we've kind of been doing them in smaller groups. Uh, but it, it, it was life-changing for me. It really reveals some things that you actually seek after other than God. Because my heart, there's a throne there. There's a place that only Jesus is supposed to sit. And how often do I put other things there? How often do I, instead of go to him and do the thing that he needs, you know, for, that I need to do to get to him, I do the thing that's the easy one. And that's the thing about idols, isn't it? It's the easy way. We go to these idols, they're everywhere around our, our lives because it's the easy thing to do. And we get something from them. That's why we do them. I'll read a couple of them. They're so profound. There's some big idols we call far idols. Comfort, control, approval, power, and then some kind of smaller, nearer ones, image idolatry, is that not big in our day and age with Instagram, Facebook? It's all about image and self-worth and what we can put out there for the world to see. Helping idolatry, I don't know if you do this, but I do this. I try to be the, always be available, you know, like help and I, I, I can do anything, I'll fix anything. I got an issue there. I, I, I need to, you guys gotta go through freedom for it. Independence, achievement, religion, irreligion, work idolatry. Oh my gosh. There's a lot of them, and maybe you see yourself in, that, in some of those spaces where you, you know, you're building your life not on Jesus and what he's calling you, calling you to, you're building it on something else. So I don't think this culture was that much different at all. And the more I thought about this, and here's, I'm really, this is going to sting a little bit, but it, sneaks, it stings for me too. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how influenced this culture must have been. Everything that they see, it's all around them, under every street corner. It's, all, and then we, it's very similar for us with our phones and our life, our technology. I've been doing this preacher guy stuff a long time. I heard the name Hezekiah, not going to lie, so I'm pretty smart. 
I couldn't, before I started looking at this stuff, I couldn't tell you the story. And the story's amazing. And I thought, how many of us in this room that can call ourselves Christians could have told the story? How much do we actually know about the scripture? We say we have faith, but how much does it actually affect our lives? Obviously, you guys are all very spiritual. You came to church, so you, you, maybe you know. But really, when you think about Christianity as a whole, like how much is it actually influencing our day-to-day life when we go out under the trees, when we're out working? Do we see this stuff? Is it, in, is it influencing me? I mean, we're, I think, I don't think that it's influencing us the way we think it does. I think that uh, we're much more, much more influenced by politics, culture. I mean, that's, that's a big thing for us more than sometimes even, even, our own, even our own faith. We get pulled in so many directions. Like, yeah, I might not have been able to tell you about Hezekiah, but I sure can tell you a lot about the Jaguars and the moves that they're making, right? I know a lot about politics. Why? Because it's always on the TV. It's on every, it's on every channel. I know what all the issues are. I know what this is going, and, I don't even, and I'm old. I, I don't even have uh, social media, and I still know that you people with the social media, you probably know a lot, right? What is driving us? What are we building our lives on, right? I know that little difficult, but I want you to imagine this is the kind of culture, this is the kind of people that are getting ready to hear Hezekiah's uh, call, all right? So go to chapter uh, 29 in Second Chronicles, and let's check it out. So here's Hezekiah. He was 25, year old, five, 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, don't know if that's right, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David did. In the first month, in the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple and repaired them. Remember, it had bolted and shut 20 years. And the first thing that he does is go to the temple and open those doors. And he brought the priests and the Levites assembled in the square on the east side and said this. He starts at the temple. He starts at the church. He starts at the door. And man, when we realize yeah, I'm focused on a lot of things other than Jesus. I'm focused on a lot of things other than, re, re, you know, my, my duty towards God and my faith, all, all the different kind of things. The first thing we've got to do is go to the temple. Where's the temple now? It's in our hearts. And we need to open those doors. There it said it, said it to me in between services. It's like, we've got to open the doors and just see what's in there. We've got to see what's in our heart. We've got to let the light in. And look what happens when they do. It's crazy. So he calls the Levites, the priests, the church. Remember, there's idols on every corner. There's a lot of different religions going on, yet there's still a group of people that it, the, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not something they didn't know. There were still priests and Levites, and he gathers them all together, 25 years old. I'd barely been paying rent at 25 years old. Now this guy's going to be a king of a, a struggling nation, you know? And this is what he says. Listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves. You need to set yourself apart. Turn your heart towards God and towards the, the Lord's temple, the God of our ancestors. Remember, all defilement, remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our parents were unfaithful, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and forgot him. They turned their faces from the Lord's dwelling and turned their backs from him. And they also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. The portico is just, it's the porch. It's known as Solomon's porch. It was a place of prayer. That's where the people would come and they would pray. And he's like, we got to open the doors and we got to clean out everything. We got we to get back to the place of prayer. We got to get back to the place of worship. This is his call. This is where he's moving, right? It gets, it gets awesome. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the, 
to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger, anger of the Lord had fallen on Judah and Jerusalem, and he made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, just as you had seen with your own eyes. Verse 9, this is why our fathers have fallen by the sword and why our sons and daughters and wives are in captivity. Now look at this in verse 10. So he's like, look, this is what happens when we don't follow God, when we follow after our own comforts, our own spaces. We, we, we create our own idols. It's just like uh, Tim Keller was saying. Eventually, these idolatrous, sinful things will enslave us. We'll be captive to, to them, and it'll affect all the people in our life, not just us. Now look what he says in verse 10. This, to me, sounds like, a, a, like he, just, he must have been a very passionate charismatic guy kind of gives me like brave the brave heart vibe you know he he looks at them after saying all this stuff in verse 10 he says now i intend to make a covenant with the lord i intend and i would say that to you this morning you're here in church i'm saying it to myself i've been saying it to myself all week i said it this morning at the fire station what do i intend to do with god What's in my heart? When was the last time you, at the eyes of your heart, you looked up to heaven and you intended to connect with him, to make a covenant with him, to spend time with him, to get your eyes off of your own issues, your own pains, your own fears, and just look to him? What do you intend to do with God this morning? And when was the last time that you moved towards him with those eyes, with that desire? You're Christians. We're Christians. So he says, hey, I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. Verse 11, this again, I, this is awesome stuff. He says, my sons, do not be negligent now. And I would say that to us, to any of us, to myself, to the Christians in this country. Now is the time. Do not be negligent now. Now is the time to make a call back to worship, a call back to God, a call back to prayer. For the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him and to minister before him in the burnt, burnt, uh, and burn incense. Man, do we not need people to hear that call today? Like to not just have a form of religion and, and things that we do, but to be moved by God to worship him. I know it sounds like I do all that stuff, but I don't. I'll get to that in a minute. Verse 15. When they had dissembled their fellow Israelites and consecrated themselves, they went to purify the... Uh, went to go purify the temple of the Lord as the king had ordered. And they follow the word of the Lord. See what he's doing here? They're going back to the church. They're opening up the places. They're getting back into scripture, following the words of the Lord. They're opening back up. The priests are, are doing the thing. Verse 16, the priests went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it. Now look at this. This is pretty cool. They went out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple and they took everything unclean that they had found in the temple. And the Levites took it and carried it away and threw it into the Kidron Valley. Now, remember a few weeks ago, Derek was talking about Jehoshaphat fighting this war in the valley. It was called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. This is the same valley. This is a very uh, uh, important valley in, his, in history to the Israelites. And to me, it's like a picture of, of the human condition, the Kidron Valley. Uh, um, it's, it's a place where wars had been fought. It's a place where the poor were buried. Uh, people that didn't have much money. There's, there's, there's mourning there. It was associated with mourning. Uh, throughout various time in Israel's time, anytime they realized, like, we've got this all messed up, they would take these idols, they would take these altars, and they would bring them, they'd throw them in that valley. It says they would crush them into pieces. They would light them up and burn them up. It's this valley, David himself, barefooted, weeping, crossed this valley, running for his life as he had been abandoned 
and he was being persecuted by the people. He's, it's, it's a place of mourning. It's a place of feeling alone. It's a place of feeling abandoned by loved ones. It's a place where we've buried our loved ones and felt that pain of being alone now. It's, it's pretty neat. It's also known, traditionally known as the Valley of Decision. I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard, heard of that. But it's a picture of us to me. The image of it's like, this is the human condition. This is the human experience. This is the human heart. In our hearts, we've, we've, we've fought wars against ourselves and against the, the things that we struggle with. We've, we've buried loved ones, and we felt that pain when, when they were gone. We, we've, we, we've struggled with sin. We've tried to get rid of idols. It's, it's all this. It's the valley of decision where we're trying to figure out what's the path I'm going on. What am I doing with my life? The valley of decision. And here's the crazy thing, man. This valley is the same one that Jesus in John 18 walks through the night before his death. He, Jesus himself, walks through the valley of decision. And on the other side of that, that, that valley is the garden. And it's the place that he walked through. See, for us, this valley was, was associated with mourning and suffering and death and war. And Jesus went right to that place in our hearts. And even if we try everything to clean our own idols out and fix our own problems, we can't do it. And what does Jesus do? He goes to that place. He goes to that garden and he makes the decision after going through that valley to take that on himself. The work of the cross. This is the gospel. I cannot fix myself. I can try to clean out every part of my heart, let all the wind in. Without Jesus coming in, I'll just be ashes. I'll just be bones. I'll still be this pain. But he, he turns all ashes into beauty because that's what he does. It's the gospel. Sorry for the tears. I'm crying way less this time. I'm excited. No nose blowing. Doing good, Dave. Keep it up. Uh, pictures. Oh, yeah. I did that last time, too. Don't worry about it. It's God's way of saying, quit being a funny guy and get back on the track. Uh, uh. So anyway, so they, they throw it into the valley. They start cleaning this thing up. It takes them eight days. They're opening the doors, all the stuff, and then they get to Solomon's porch. What does Solomon's porch represent? It was a place. It was a giant courtyard where people prayed. You know, like they sought God here. And I would say to us, what about the porch that Solomon's place in our hearts? Do you make prayer a, a, a place that you go to? You do, is it a p- thing that you're passionate about? When are we going to seek God again in this way? Like, I mean, I say all this stuff. I made myself get up early at the fire station today to pray uh, because I, I'm not going to get up here and pretend like I'm waking up every day and praying. I'm not. I'm, 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 going, to the, I'm going the easy route. I'm sleeping in. I'm seeking other ways to comfort myself. It's not easy to do some of this stuff, and I'm not going to pretend that it is. But man, when are we going to decide to do these kind of things, you know? I was listening to a story by uh, J.D. Greer. He, he's a famous preacher. Uh, he wrote a book about Hezekiah, and I was listening to some of the stuff, getting ready for this thing, and he talked about how they had a prayer meeting at his church. He was very disappointed because only 400 people came. He's like, only 400 of you guys came, and I'm like, Holy smokes, he has a 12,000-member church. I was like, if 400 people came to our prayer meeting, it'd be our entire church. It was like, holy cow. But he was saying these really challenging things, and I felt convicted. He was like, you know, hey, how often do you pray for your church? And I was like, yeah. He liked when he said that thing. He's like, yeah, we need to pray for our church. How often are you praying for your country? And you're like, yep. Uh, you know, you say that kind of stuff. How often are you praying for your family? And then he just said it really intensely. He goes, are you even praying? They're like just flabbergasted. He said, are you even praying for your own children daily, those of you that have them? And I was just like, 
man, why am I not going to that porch in my heart and seeing God every day for these kids that I love so much? I mean, I do pray for them, but where's the disconnect, no? Why is it not happening the way that it should? And I would say the same thing to you. Are we making space for worship, this kind of worship? Are we setting ourselves up to pray this way and let it become a passion? Anyway, I'm not, uh, I said it a little meaner in the first service. I think it should be nicer. You saw the, the announcement for a uh, prayer meeting. Usually it's like 10 to 12 people that come. Those of you that have been a church, part of this church for a while, why don't you come? Why don't you come and let's seek God together? Let's go to Solomon's porch and let's pray for the, the refugees in Ukraine. We're trying to raise uh, money for them through the golf tournament. Let's pray about this. Let's pray about the war. Let's pray for our church. Let's pray for our kids. Why won't you come? Show up. Show up. And I hope I'm there so that I can see who was there. And I hope I don't work at the fire station that day. <laughs> But come, let's pray, let's try it. Let's turn our hearts towards heaven together, just like these people did. Let's move towards God in that way. Why not? What's stopping us? What's stopping you from gathering in prayer? All right, so they do all this stuff and they set it up to begin the big Passover feast. Jump to verse 29, this is pretty neat. When the offerings were finished, the king and everyone present with with him knelt down before him and worshiped. Remember what Derek was talking about a few weeks ago? You're about to see all of this last two weeks' sermons in two passages. Watch what happens. They did everything, they got it set up, and they began to kneel down and worship. And the king and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the words of the words of David and Asaphah the seer. And look what happens. Here's Antley's part. So they sang praises with gladness as they bowed down and worshiped. You see, this is what happens when we turn our hearts towards heaven and we seek him and we praise him and we repent to him and we go to him. The Holy Spirit will come and he will go to that place, that altar that no idol of this world can go to and he will fill it with the one thing that we are actually longing for. Gladness, joy, peace, and comfort. Not happiness that exists here, but actual Holy Spirit-born gladness. And with that gladness comes power. With that spirit of power behind us, you will see the world begin to change. And we're fixing to see it right here. Great stuff. Uh, Sounds easy. That's preacher guy stuff. I get it. But here's the thing. None of this is easy. This kind of showing up and and praying, uh, it's going to take sacrifices. Worshiping like this, you got to give something up. That's why it's easier to go to the other things in the world than to go to God like this. Full-hearted worship requires us of letting go of everything else, including our own problems, and focusing in on him to worship him for one reason, not because he can give us anything, just because we love him, because we love him. We love Jesus. He set me free on the heart. He forgives my sin. He calls me, that he gives me a hope of a resurrection just because we love him, not because he can fix all my problems. Not just because he can make me temporarily feel better from whatever I'm dealing with today. Because we love him. We love him. We worship him because he deserves it. We are wired to worship. Which is why, let me, I said this to the students too, why it's so easy for us to fall into the, 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 the sex as an idol cult. Because we're wired for both things. We're wired to worship and we're wired to do that. That's how God intended for us to be happy and make a bunch of kids. Right? It's easy to fall into those things because we are built to worship. But when we don't worship Jesus, when we exclude him, when we try to do it our own way, it's the only thing that it does eventually is end up making us unhappy and enslaving us. 
And I have been there a lot in my life. I've been there in the last two weeks. I'm struggling with something uh, with, that's really hard within my, my extended family. And I I, to be honest with you, I, didn't, I haven't really prayed about it at all in two weeks. It's been really difficult. I've been putting on my Pastor Dave face, faking it. And I, I mean, I literally was thinking this morning, I was like, the thing I'm struggling with the most, I have not sought God about. Why? But I've been comforting, I've been doing the, I've been going the other, I'm going the easy route. Why do we do that? Do you do that? Does what I'm saying relate to you at all? So anyway, they're pumped. They have their first big one. And then Hezekiah is 25 years old. He's like, it's been 20 years since the people of Israel. All of them, the ones in the northern kingdom have been here. We got to tell him. So he, I mean, he's so pumped up, he sends out letters, a, pro, a proclamation throughout the whole land saying, hey, come on back. It's a call to worship. It's a call to prayer. It's a call to make what? Sacrifices. And that's what these things are going to take when we go to God. It's a call to come back. Let's come together and let's worship Jesus. So, or they didn't know almost Jesus yet, but I'll show you in a minute. Um, so ch- uh, chapter 30, go there, verse 5. He makes the call, and listen to this. They decided to send out a proclamation throughout Israel from Beersheba to Dan, calling the people to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover again, for it had not been celebrated in large numbers as to what was written in a long time. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials. And this is what I read. I'm going to read you part of it. It's kind of long. I'm going to just read you this part because you can see Jesus right here. You can see who he is. You can see the story of Jesus. You can see the story of the gospel. Don't cry, Dave. So he said this in the letter. If you return, so he writes this whole thing, calling him back to worship, and he says this. If you return to the Lord, then your fellow Israelites and your children will be shown compassion, and they will return to this land. For the Lord, your God, is gracious and compassionate, and he will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Is that not our message Paul talked about each Christian having a, a message of reconciliation. Is that not what we would tell the world? Jesus is compassionate, he's kind. And bring your garbage, bring your sin, bring your pain, bring your idols. And when you go to him, he will not turn his face from you because he loves you. Is that not the message of the gospel? Right here in the pages, 700 years before the, Jesus walked the earth, he will not turn his face from you. It says that if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. It's so close. It's so close. He knocks like it says in Revelation on our hearts. The seeking heart will open. He's so close. He's after the seeking heart. It's amazing. You're going to be fixing to see that here too. All right, so they make the call. They're pumped up. Or, Woo, everyone's going to come to our church. Uh, it's going to be huge. Uh, check out verse 10. The couriers, the ones with the letters, went to the town to town, Ephraim, Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, and people scorned and ridiculed them. It is not the response they were looking at. And is that not going to happen to us when we, we live our faith? Are people not going to make fun of us, tear us down, ridicule us, tell you this faith stuff you're following is fake, it's not real, God's, Jesus didn't die on a cross. When you follow Jesus, when you worship him, when, when you become a Christian and you decide to, to walk that narrow road, people were, are going to make fun of it. They're going to ridicule you and scorn you. But look at this, verse 11. Nevertheless, some from Asher... And Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and they went to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind. How amazing. 
from what the king and his officials had ordered. Some are going to ridicule. Some are going to doubt. Some are not going to believe. But some are going to believe. Some are going to humble themselves. And some will come to hear that Jesus will not turn his face from you if you go to him. And this is the ethos of our mission here at this church. The invitation. Make the invitation. Make the invitation. Tell everyone. God is compassionate. His name is Jesus, and he will not turn his face from you. In fact, he will save you. He longs for you to open your heart so he can fill you with the Holy Spirit and give you power so that you can go out and carry this message to all the world. This is what it's like. It says in Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. They're going to ridicule it, but to those that are being saved, it has power that's the power of who the Holy Spirit, of God. This is what Antley was, was, was teaching last week. So some come. They're ready to go. Pretty large crowd. Uh, look in verse 18, see what happens. Uh, so all these people come. And remember their culture. These guys were new to the game. Like they hadn't been living the right, following all the rules and doing everything right. And look what happens. Verse 18. Although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasai, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves yet, they ate the Passover, contrary to, contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, My Lord, who is good, pardon everyone who sets their hearts on seeking God, the Lord, the God of our ancestors. Do you see it now? It's not about cleaning up your life and you're the one that are going to take all the idols by yourself and throw it in the valley and you're going to be the one to get yourself right. No, it starts with that opening of the door and you seek him and you repent and you tell him you, you need him and he pardons. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is no way to pardon yourself. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot clean yourself. There's only one. And his name is Jesus. There's only one that can walk into that valley and take that place that used to be associated with mourning and suffering and death and make it holy. Jeremiah 31, there was a weird prophecy that he, would pray, that he prayed about the, uh, a prophecy over this valley, Kidron, and he said, no longer will this be a place of death and ashes. It will become holy to the Lord, to the Lord our God. And that's exactly what happens when Jesus comes in. He makes us, that you should just be ashes. He makes us beautiful. He makes us new. This is the rebirth. All right, so he heals them. He pardons them. Awesome stuff. Some were not fit to follow the rules. I want to tell you a funny story. My buddy was in the first service. Uh, he used to have red hair. Now he's bald. Uh, and I, reading this, I thought a lot about him. His name's David, uh, David Devers. My kids know, know him pretty good. So I tell surf stories you know, this, we have surfers that lead this church. If you went to another church where they, I don't know, hunt and fish, you're probably going to hear hunting stories. So here you hear surf stories. You guys not laugh? The first surfers cracked up at that. God, you guys are a lot, a lot harder nut to crack. But some of you laughed. And that's how you sort of fix it when no one laughs. You like acknowledge that it wasn't that funny. I need to be quiet now and tell this Dave story. So we go to Costa Rica, a bunch of us new Christian guys, and this guy David just got saved, man, and he was raw. Like he, he was with, we were about 12 of us, and he was just, he knew it, like in his heart he sought God, but he didn't know any of the rules. He didn't know any of the etiquette. We're surfing at this little place. It was so cool. We, had, we paid a bunch of money to take a boat out, to like, I mean, probably 300 yards off the coast to this one spot. It was a couple hundred feet deep, but there was a huge rock under there, and it would make this, in one spot, this awesome wave. So we're just like, yeah, we're jumping out of the boat like, we made money, we're going to surf this one way by ourselves. Then all of a sudden, I mean, we're having a blast, another boat pulls up, 
We had a bad run-in with these Brazilians. They all jumped out, and they start paddling, and it turns into like this whole thing. And Dave just got saved. He's like, I'll meet you guys on the beach, and I'm going to beat you all. Like he's challenging them to a fight. I'm like, no, you know, paddle back to the boat. We're the rules say you're supposed to turn the other cheek, not challenge Brazilians to fight, you know, like get over here. And he's just raw and passionate, you know. And the next day, uh, I can't remember if it was where it was, Hermosa or something like that. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Costa Ricans surfing, but there was also, you'd see Americans show up or people that weren't from Costa Rica. And I saw Dave paddle over to this guy and I got nervous and he looked like he was from the States. And I'm like, oh no, I better go make sure he's not gonna beat that guy up. And uh, I paddle over and there's Dave. And I, as I get close on my board, I literally hear him preaching the gospel to this guy. And he's like, man, we, I just found Jesus. That's why we're all here. We're all Christians. You should come to the church tonight. It's real. He's like preaching the message at him. And it was like, holy cow. And that's what I thought about these people that were coming. And here's the thing with Dave. I told all the other guys the story afterwards. And our buddy Reuben was there. Uh, Chad knows Reuben pretty good. And I told them all. And Dave used to have red hair. So Reuben was like, yeah, I like my Jesus, Ginger. And so we started calling him Ginger Jesus. To this day, in my phone, he calls, it says Ginger Jesus. My children know him as Ginger ginger Jesus. Um, yeah, it's pretty, he's a great guy. I, I love him. He's been a good friend, but it's not about the rules and about getting it right. It's about the seeking heart. You still laughing about ginger Jesus? It's, I think it's a pretty cool nickname. He doesn't seem to have a problem with it. He's like, yeah, ginger Jesus. Even though he's bald now, all of his hair fell out, but it, it happens. So let's, re, let's recap. Everything's going good. God's just pardoning the, uh, the, the sin. They're not following the rules. The Holy Spirit's there. It's a revival right? It's a revival. The entire place is rejoicing. It says in verse 26 that there had never been a day like this ever in Jerusalem. Never. It was saying that their prayers, this, listen, this is cool, their prayers were reaching God's holy dwelling. Is that not what we want? Is for our prayers to just make it to him, make it to his place? Like, it says that what was happening. This was a special, special time. Uh, worship and prayer invites the Holy Spirit into the seeking heart. Gladness comes, and God wants us to experience that. But it's not just about feeling good and spiritual, is it? God will begin to take a person, and when he regenerates them, and he fills them with power, and he comforts them, and he puts them on mission, something will happen. Look what happens to these people. Remember, the Passover is over, and they're fixing to go back to their normal life. Second Chronicles 31. Watch what happens to these people. When all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, and smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars all throughout Judea and Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh. After they had destroyed them all, the Israelites returned to their own towns and property. Amazing. This is what happens to a people when they get regenerated like this, when they worship God, when they take their eyes off their own idols, their own sin, their own pains, and they Prayer becomes a passion. They set aside their eyes and their time towards God. They will begin to be, it will begin to be born in them a desire to burn those idols and to affect change by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. These are, the, these are the weapons to burn the idols of this world up. It's the spirit of God, the fruits of the spirit. It's amazing. When, when, when a person meets Jesus and worships him for who he is, this is just like it talks about in Freedom Course. You've got to go to Freedom Course. But see, I think, I think we got it all backwards. Like right now in our day and age, there's a lot of like idol pointing out. Like, hey, you can't think about it. You can't live that way. That's wrong. You've got to live the way I say. 
oh, you need to clean this up, and we say you should behave this way. It happens all on Twitter and everything like that, and on the news. And all these, there's all this jockeying among the kings of the earth. And then I, that's a, a thing we'll get to in a second. And, and the idols is like, nope, live this way. Clean up your altars. Build this one. Do it our way. But I think we got it backwards. I think we need to stop calling out, hey, this is how you should live your life. This is how you should clean up your mess and start calling people back to worship, back to prayer, back to Jesus, back to church, to church back to this type of, of heart level seeking. Because you guys are here, but there are a lot of people that, Stop going to church in America after the pandemic. It just kind of got used to not coming anymore, and it's time to make a call back and, and allow God to bring them into that valley where the idols get smashed. It's in the heart. That's his job. We have a message of go to Jesus. He will not turn his face. So we're at revivals here. Everything's going awesome. People are coming, and they're going back to their towns, and now they just have this super awesome life, right? Guess what? No, Bam. A short time after this, another war comes raging, another king's at the door. And I would say this, when a God awakens a heart, a war will always come. When God brings revival to any group of people, even if it's small or large, a war will always come. Remember, we are not just in a physical fight. Our battle is not against just flesh and blood. There's a spiritual one. And the devil will do anything to break us down, to get our eyes off Jesus, to get the fight out of us and kill us so we won't labor in prayer. So we won't do what it takes to go and worship at the house of the Lord in our hearts. He'll do anything to get us to look away and say, it's not true. Look at these things. Comfort yourself this way. He'll do anything. A war will always come, and you should expect it, Christians. So King Sennacherib shows up, and he is just doing all this terrible stuff. He's like, I'm burning this place down. And he starts making proclamations in Hebrew to the people listening. Remember, they just had this experience where they got rid of the old gods, the old way of life, and now they're following God, and he just starts mocking God. It sounds like the devil in the garden. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but he's just saying, hey, don't you remember how the other, all the other t- wars have happened? Our God's won. So you're gonna believe Hezekiah? You guys are all gonna die of hunger and thirst. You should come back to our side. We'll spare you. Just come worship our gods. And how often do we do that when things get hard, when wars rage in our lives, do we start listening to the kings of the world again? How easily are we tempted to go back the easy way to get comfort from our idols in our hearts and not stay focused on Jesus? It's hard, I know. But Jesus' way is narrow. He said it. There's a wide path and a narrow path. So here it is, another war, God's being mocked, the people are threatened, and at the same time, Hezekiah gets sick. So not only is he, his whole thing he's been working to is there's a fight against it, now he's, at, he's sick and it says he's at the point where he might not survive. And this, is this not like the enemy, like fear, mockery, doubt? every corner. And here's, here's Hezekiah, right? There's a war. There's an army. Things are raging. Is he not like, I've been doing everything right. I've been a faithful person. I've been bringing people back to living a, a godly way. And now there's a war and now I'm sick. Have you ever felt like that? Like, I've been trying to be a Christian. I've been trying to follow God. And it still feels like things are just raging around me. And I still have this issue in my body or my loved one does. And it's like, God, what, what's, where are you at? Are you gonna come through? Trying to keep our eyes on the other things. So uh, 
here's what happens. It's pretty cool. He prays, the prophet Isaiah comes, you know, again, that was five chapters of stuff we just went through. And a prophet comes and say, hey, God's going to heal you. And, you know, Hezekiah was grave. Oh, so anyway, I missed one part. <laughs> God, they pray, they see God, and this crazy thing happens, happens a bunch of times in these stories. The whole army, about 180,000 of them, kill each other. Uh, Sennacherib runs away and ends up getting killed in his, uh, a, a temple of one of his gods by one of his children. All of Israel saved. Everyone's excited. Yeah, God won the battle, but Hezekiah's still sick, and he's laying in his bed. And so he's grateful for what God had done. He is grateful that God has shown up and done these big things, but he's still wondering, is God going to come do the small one for me? You saved thousands. Are you going to save me? And so Isaiah comes and says, hey, God is going to heal you. And after all that, he asked for a sign. He said, well, what's the sign that God will heal me? And so there was a stairway up to his bedroom. It was known as this, uh, the dial of Ahaz or the stairway of Ahaz. And it was a stairway to the room, but it was basically like a clock. So they built it to where the sun would rise and you could watch the shadow go up the steps and you'd know roughly what time of day it was. So Isaiah looks over at the stairs and he says, well, God will move the shadow down 10 steps and you'll know you'll be healed. So Hezekiah looks and he sees it and he watches the shadow move. So God had done this amazing war and then he moves the shadow for Hezekiah. And uh, it made me think of a buddy of mine that's been going through a lot of stuff. I got permission to tell the story. Uh, I won't mention who it was before I got up here, but he was going through a lot of stuff, man. A lot of, for several years, just chronic pain, uh, just, re, you know, no answers to the pain, personal things, trying to live right, God, you, know, you know, basically saying, God, I've been trying to do everything right. I've been trying to do, uh, be faithful. And I'm glad that you keep doing these other big things in my life, but are you going to come? Can you do this one, small one for me? And so he's a big surfer, and he gets a new watch, like an expensive surf watch. And it's, you know, when you're suffering, the little things mean a lot. You know, like you just spent a couple hundred bucks on this Tide watch, and you're just like, those things, you care a lot about it. Just a little tiny thing to, to give you a little peace. So he rides his bike down to the uh, pier, ties his bike up, and takes his watch off, puts it on the seat of his bike, and then puts his wet wetsuit on. And in his haste, he forgot to put the watch on. And he goes out to, to paddle. He's got a lot and surf. He's got a lot on his mind, a lot going on, just dealing with chronic uh, pain issues. And all of a sudden, he realizes that the watch is gone, and it just breaks him in the heart. He's like, really, really, God? Just one little tiny thing. And while he's out there, I don't know if you've been to the Jack's Beach Pier before, but there's a lot of riffraff there. And I don't even know what riffraff means, but it's bad. There's a lot of shady looking characters at times. And he's, he's just like, the, the watch is gone. There's no way it's sitting right by the main entrance. Brand new, shiny, several hundred dollar watch is gone. And he just, he looks up to heaven in his heart. He turns his eyes towards heaven and that's what we should do when we're suffering and he just says in his heart God if you're going to heal me even if you don't do it right now let that watch still be sitting on that bike's, bike seat he asks for a sign so he gets out and goes surfing gets back up the boardwalk definitely expecting that the watch is gone and he gets up there and he sees the shine of that watch still there God had moved a shadow for him and that's, that's sometimes that's all you need from the Holy Spirit is just know that he's with you and know that maybe if you don't see it now, that you're still in that valley of suffering, you're still in that valley of, of mourning, that he is walking down that valley of decision for you and that he would pay any price and he does on the cross. I want to read you the prayer after he gets this news that he's going to be healed. 
And we're going to close with this. This is what in Isaiah 38, if you haven't listened to anything I've been saying this whole time, just read the words that are about to come on the screen, please. It's beautiful. Hezekiah prays. I cried like a swift or a thrush. I mourned like the morning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am being threatened. Lord, come to my aid. But what can I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all the years, all my years, because of the anguish of my soul. Verse 16 is amazing. Lord, by such, such people th- by such things people live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health and let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. You know you're close to God when you can say that and mean it in your soul when you're hurting. Surely it was for my benefit. In your love, You kept me from the pit and you have put all of my sins behind your back. Man, does Hezekiah not know that as Jesus is walking down that valley, when he's knowing that this is the place of mourning and sadness and suffering and heartbreak and idol uh, smashing and wars, that he wasn't just gonna put those sins behind his back, that he was gonna decide to put him on his back. And he was going to take the cross for you and I. That he was going to bear the pain. He was going to bear the suffering. Why? Because he loves us. And it was worth it to him. And he's going to turn those, those terrible places in us. He's going to turn a place that used to be associated with pain and struggle. And he's going to make it holy. And he's going to make it beautiful. Would you stand? Father God, I thank you for every person in this room. God, no matter what they're dealing with, God, that they would turn their hearts towards you. It starts with the opening of those doors. God, that you would call to them, call them to those that are in in, in that valley, the different places of our existence that are struggling, that are hurting. For those that are in a good place, God, that you would remind them to seek you, even in the prosperity, God. And above all else, Jesus, I pray that your will would be done and you would be glorified this morning in Jesus' name.